Welcome, everybody, and especially welcome to any visitors here this morning. Welcome to everyone online. Um, it's just great to be here. Uh, as you know from, from last week, um, we started into a, a, a short two-part series that I didn't get very far in last week, um, so we've got a lot of ground to cover this week, which is it, it's exciting. It's gonna, we're going to be moving at a pretty fast clip, but that's okay. Before I start, though, I want to just pause and this has been on my heart and mind for the, these past two weeks and even before that as I've been preparing. And that is, uh, I want to pause and just ask everyone to take a moment to recognize and consider the faithfulness of Phil Pike as our teaching pastor because, you know, when a, when a preacher, someone who's going to be teaching and doing this, has to stand up here and open the Word of God and open his mouth and be the spokesperson for God, there is a frightening thing about this. And every time I do this, I am reminded of just how terrifying and serious it is. And every time I do this, as is the case for every teacher who, hopefully every teacher who does this, opens God's word and opens his mouth, there is a, a preparing process leading up to this of God putting a mirror in front of that person as we open the word of God to communicate what he wants to say to the congregation, he, he has this mirror in front of us. So we are having to deal with ourselves first and God's, um, God's estimation of us before we stand up here and do this. And can I say it is not an easy thing? It's not an easy thing. And Phil Pike has been doing this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for years and years. And his faithfulness, his love for us, his love for God, and his faithfulness to God is something to be commended. And I just hope that sometimes we will pause and take a moment to consider that. And if there's opportunity to say an encouraging word or simply a word of gratitude and thanks to him, I think that would be that would go a long ways. And I meant to mention last week that he just, he just needed a, a break. He had been teaching for weeks, weeks and weeks. And uh, the elders uh, have tried to make a conscious decision to make sure he has breaks. And so uh, we were long overdue for him to have a break. So we gave him two weeks off because he, just one week doesn't do it because he's got that next Sunday coming that he's, you know, having to prepare for. I know what that's like. So we gave him two weeks off and uh, I hope that he has found it restful. But I do want to say how much I appreciate him and his, not only his faithfulness as my uh, pastor, my brother, um, my uh, shepherd, as he helps shepherd the flock with us, um, but as a friend. So, all right. Uh, let's, let's just jump in. I uh, if you weren't here last week and didn't catch it online, I do encourage you um, to maybe go back. I, I kind of laid the foundation of what we're talking about. What we're, what we're looking at are the letters from Jesus. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize that Jesus, just like the other New Testament writers, wrote letters to the churches. 
Actually, he wrote seven letters to the churches, and uh, those are found in the book of Revelation. And we often, uh, I think churches often neglect the letters that he has written. And that's what we're looking at. And so last week, I kind of laid a foundation for that, explaining it, uh, explaining uh, what this whole book, Revelation, is, and um, just kind of uh, where these letters were um, authored and, and, and all of that. So basically, in a nutshell, John, the apostle John, the disciple of Jesus, uh, now probably the, the only remaining um, of the 12, many have been martyred. Many of um, those early church uh, apostles uh, had been killed for their faith. John being one of the few who uh, actually died of natural causes. And he had been ex, ex, um, exiled to the island of Patmos, which is kind of like an Alcatraz of that day of, uh, of prisoners being put out there. So there he is, and he is praying in the spirit. And basically, an angel comes, and he has this incredible vision and revelation, and part of this is uh, him having to write uh, everything that he sees. Jesus telling him, I want you to write everything that you see. And many times throughout, as I mentioned, he's having to remind him, write this down. And that's what John is doing is he's writing down as fast as he can everything that he is seeing in this incredible vision. And the very beginning of this book, Revelation, we have in the first three chapters, these letters that Jesus is having him dictate to go to the seven churches of that day in that area of uh, what was Asia Minor, Minor, now Turkey. And these seven churches were fairly close together, and Jesus is writing to these churches. And I, I want to I say that we need to remember that this is actually... So important because these first three chapters prepare them and us for what's to come. And as you read on in Revelation, you start to see the incredible things that are to come uh, and still to come for us. And so these first three chapters are to prepare us, the church, for what is to come. And what's so awesome is that God, over everything else, above everything else, is most concerned for his church, for his people, for the bride of Christ. And Jesus knows the heart of his Father as well. And they are, throughout the book of Revelation, that is their primary concern, is for the church. And you see it come out in these letters that we're looking at. Jesus communicating some hard things, some commendations, some praise for what they're doing right, but also correction and rebuke for what they're doing wrong. But all for the purpose of preparing them for what's to come, that's going to be very, very difficult. And not only that, but for the incredible banquet and wedding that will follow. God is preparing his bride, and he is concerned about the church, cares about the church so much that Jesus himself communicates these letters to the churches to help prepare them. So as we're looking at these, I want us to remember that, that these are for our good. 
not just for the churches back then, those seven churches. These are for us. And we need to be mining this, digging out every gem and nugget that we can out of this truth. So we're going to try to get through the other six because I only got through one last week. But I had a foundation delay. It's okay. All right. So we're going to really uh, we're going to look at these and try to keep things moving. So one of the things we we looked at the church uh, the letter to the church of Ephesus in Ephesus, and one of the things before that that is mentioned is that John sees this incredible vision and he sees this what looks like the Son of Man standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And we know these lampstands to represent the churches, the seven churches. And it's, it's, it's neat to see the fact that Jesus is standing in the midst of them. Jesus is among them. And that's how we need to look at these as Jesus is writing to these churches. Remember, he is also walking among them. He is in the midst of the churches then and the churches now. And so we should keep that in mind as we're looking at this. Jesus is in the midst of us, of churches. All right. I'm get my little remote because we got a lot of things um, I'll be putting on the screen. So as we're looking at these letters, I, I mentioned last week, we're going we're gonna to kind of funnel them through these six questions. And these six questions are this. Number one, who was the author of the letter? And the little hint I'll give you now is Jesus is the author of all of them. Um, but I want to really make sure we remember that as we look at all of them. Who is the author? To whom was it written? Very important to remember that these letters were written to believers, New Testament believers. Jesus had been on the earth. He had done his ministry. He had prepared his disciples. He had done all of that. He had died on the cross and he had been resurrected. And now he has come back for the sake of his servants, for the sake of his church and to communicate this stuff. So these letters are written to New Testament believers just like us. Thirdly, what were they doing right? Let's look at what Jesus says they were doing right. Number four, what were they doing wrong? Just as much as we need to receive the, um, the praise and commendation of our Lord, we need to receive his correction as well. Number five, how do they overcome? How do they overcome the adversity, the, the trial, um, the difficulty? How do they overcome? Because as I'll mention in a minute, Jesus stresses this point of being overcomers. And lastly, number six, what is the promised reward? God is all about rewards. And if you think otherwise, get into your Bible and start highlighting every time he says, you do this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bless you with this. There's plenty of warnings too, as we'll be looking at as well. But we're going to look at what Jesus says is the promised reward if we do these things. Okay. Some things I want you to, some themes that are threaded throughout all seven letters I want you to pay attention to, and I mentioned these last week. The first is works. I'm not going to talk about that again. I talked about it last week. Works is not a bad word. 
We're talking about works of righteousness. We're not talking about works of the law of Moses. And God expects righteous deeds from his people. He paid a very costly price to allow us to have freedom and to have effectiveness and to be the body of Christ on this earth now to help save those who need saving. So works, you'll, you'll see that a lot. Pay attention to it. Repent. I talked about that last week. Jesus says, repent. And when he does, we need to pay attention to what does that mean? And what is he telling them to repent from? And repentance is not just a matter of your intellect and your mind. It's a matter of your actions, changing the direction and turning around and going the way you should go according to God. So repent, overcome. This is a very strong theme throughout these letters. Jesus is telling us to those who overcome, to those who conquer, to those who are victorious. Those three words are the primary three that are used in the English translations. They all mean the same thing. He presents what some of the obstacles are, some of the um, things coming against the church, and he calls us to overcome and then often addresses the, uh, the rewards of those who do. And lastly, I want you to pay attention to how often he talks about ears, those who have an ear. He often says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And what he's saying is, if you are hearing this, pay attention, listen to what I am saying. I think often on the time uh, when uh, Peter, uh, I think it was Peter, James, and John, there were three disciples that were closest to Jesus. Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that incredible scene that happened and, and, and God's voice came booming through and they heard it and he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he says, listen to him. God reminds us, tells us from the get-go, listen to him. And Jesus reminds us again and again in these, three letter, in these seven letters to, if you have an ear, Hear what I'm saying. Listen to me and let it come, go to heart. Don't just let it go in and one and out the other. Listen and take hold of it. So pay attention to those things. You might want to just highlight them as we see them in Scripture. Um, those are important themes in these letters. All right, here are the... Uh, well, let's jump in. So that's all I wanted to say about that. Let's jump right in to the second letter, which is to the church in Smyrna. So we're going to read it, and then we're going to run it through these, these six questions. All right, here's what it says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And here's, remember, this is Jesus, the author of this letter, speaking to New Testament believers in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." 
The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So that was Jesus' letter to the believers in Smyrna. So let's run it through our questions. Who was the author? Jesus. To whom was it written? Believers in Smyrna. What were they doing right? Well, they were enduring tribulation. Evidently, they were poor. They had poverty. However, Jesus said, but actually you're rich. Not with uh, monetary things, but rich with the things of God. And he said that they were enduring also slander from those who called themselves Jews. Evidently, they were a church that said synagogue. That's where they got that gathered. These Jews were gathering. They were likely new, claiming to be New Testament Jews, you know, Christian Jews who believed in Jesus, perhaps. Yet they were slandering these believers. We don't know exactly what that slander was, but Jesus calls this church out as being a synagogue of Satan. And we have to remember in the end days, even now we see this very clearly. Churches who are claiming to be Christian churches. Yet what they are teaching and allowing to be taught through that church Satan, very, excuse me, Jesus very well may say, no, that's a church of Satan. He said it about this one, and we need to remember that um, there may be those here as well. All right. What were they doing wrong? So we know what they were doing right. What were they doing wrong? Jesus says, Nothing that this is actually one of only two churches to whom Jesus had no rebuke. So we need to take note of the fact that they, uh, he had nothing to reprove them of, nothing to say to them that they were doing wrong. All right. How do they overcome? Well, Jesus said, do not fear the coming suffering and testing. I want us to take notice of the fact that Jesus knew exactly what was coming. Jesus knew the fact that Satan was going to throw them into prison. So we have to remember, even though there's so many blessings and so many um, encouraging things, uh, so many uh, wonderful things that we, we receive through our Lord Jesus Christ and because of him, that doesn't exclude us from the possibility and likelihood, actually, of suffering. Jesus says that we will, that we, if we are his followers, we will be hated. And we've been somewhat sheltered from that. But as we can see in these, in these days, that time is fading. And we are going to be experiencing persecution suffering, slander, that is coming. And so Jesus is concerned as to whether or not we're ready. And frankly, we should be concerned as to whether or not we're, we're ready. This pandemic, I think, is very eye-opening for all of us. It should be. It should be. Because if you think this was amazing in the sense that how fast it came and things changed and 
It was just incredible. This is only the beginning. There are things coming that are going to shake, shake this world. And we have got to listen to what Jesus is saying and make sure that we're ready. So do not fear, he says, do not fear the suffering and the testing that is coming. Jesus, God will always allow testing into our life. That's how he ensures that our faith is genuine. And we want that. We need to invite that into our lives. Not that we simply accept everything as being from God. We need to make sure it's not from our enemy. But if it's not, then it very well could be that Jesus is allowing suffering in our lives so that, and testing in our lives so that we can be sure our faith is real. It's genuine. Another way, he said, is to be faithful unto death. And this is something that we really are kind of far removed from, but it's getting closer. And there will be a day, perhaps it's our children or our grandchildren, or perhaps it's sooner than that, where being faithful unto death will be a reality in our lives. Are you ready? This long ago, I had someone from this church challenge me on on what on Jesus's words about if you deny me before men I will deny you before father he could not accept that 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 really means what it means and it's frustrating to see how sometimes in our culture we've painted the picture of Jesus in such a sentimental way in such a um a loving way that he's capable of nothing else. But as we see here, John is not seeing Jesus as savior. He's seeing Jesus as judge. And he fell to the floor, passed out from the fear of it. This was not the Jesus that he knew who walked on this earth with him. This is Jesus as judge. And this is who is coming back. And we need to remember that. And so we have to be ready because Jesus says again and again, if we deny him before men, he will deny us before the Father. That's a frightening thing. We have to premeditate this. Listen, if you wait until that moment where you're faced with the decision between being faithful to Jesus and his name and the faith in him, or simply caving, simply saying, Caesar is Lord, Simply saying, there's another way. Simply saying, it's okay. You're afraid. You don't have to say that. If you don't prepare, if we don't prepare ourselves, we will find ourselves on very shaky ground. And we risk caving under the pressure. Not only the pressure, the fear of it. And we need to be teaching this to our children because they're more likely to face this kind of thing than we are. We have to be ready and know that when we're faced, even at, in the face of death, we must stand firm. Jesus says we must stand firm. We cannot deny him. So that's very important. And he says it to this church who was standing firm, and he repeats and emphasizes to continue doing that. What is the promised reward? 
The promised reward is they will receive the crown of life. It is all, it's also, he said, they will not be hurt by the second death. Second death being your first death is your earthly death, your earthly body. The second death is a spiritual death. When the scripture talks about those who will perish, that's the second death we're talking about. The spirit dying in the sense of not just going away and disappearing and you're not in existence anymore, but that eternal separation and death from the Lord. So that's what the second death is talking about. And it says to them, he says to them, you will not be hurt. Those who overcome will receive the crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death. All right. Another church moving along, doing good here. All right. So let's move on to the church in Pergamum. So we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's interesting how Jesus chooses a description about himself. He's not, he doesn't use his name outright. He actually use, he uses one of his descriptions, one of his, you can call it a name, but it's, it's a description of who he is. And perhaps it's because the church needed to hear it, be reminded of it. I, I don't know, but it does vary from church to church. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, let's run it through our questions. Who was the author? Jesus. To whom was it written? To the believers in Pergamum, the church in Pergamum. By the way, can I just mention this? I think it's worth mentioning. Jesus expected the believers to be in a church. And if they were not in a church, they did not hear his letter when it was read. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't ever hear it, but my point is Jesus had an expectation for his people, his followers, his servants to be in a church. And I think that those who overlook and neglect how important this is throughout scripture and how important it is to be the body of Christ which you have to do to be, you know, there's, the, there's the global body of Christ, but there's the local body of Christ that we see. And this is an example of that, Jesus writing to the churches. And so it's important that we are in a church. Jesus is concerned 
about the church. He's concerned about us individually, but he wants us in a church because that's what he has provided for us to be able to deal with and stand in the face of some of the things that are coming. We need each other, and he knows that. All right, so what were they doing right? Well, they lived in the same city of Satan's throne. This is interesting. This was, Jesus said, this was where Satan's seat was, Satan's throne. This is where he sat. This was his headquarters. Remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not like God. He's simply a created being. He's an angel. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not uh, uh, omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He had a headquarters. He had a location. Now, we also know that he roamed the earth. He, he could, of course, travel as spirit beings can. But this was his headquarters. And this church was in the same city as his throne, as his headquarters. And Jesus says that even though you lived in the city of Satan's throne, yet they were holding fast to his name, to Jesus' name. In other words, they remained loyal to Jesus. Even in the face of what we're going to see here in a minute, persecution, even in the face of what must have been such a, an incredible um, spiritual oppression in that city. Can you imagine the place where Satan has his headquarters, his throne? I wouldn't want to live there, but Jesus was aware of it, and he commended them for it. He also said that they did not deny their faith in Jesus, even when a believer among them was killed for it. And Jesus described Antipas as a faithful witness because he remained faithful unto death. Man, how incredible would that be for Jesus to describe you as a faithful witness because you did not deny his name even in the face of death. What were they doing wrong? Well, unlike, remember the first church that we dealt with last week, the church in Ephesus, unlike that church, that church hated the work of the Nicolaitans and did not tolerate the uh, evil in their church, did not tolerate the evil teachings or um, deeds of those people in their church. But unlike them, this church, these believers had some in their church who were holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. We talked about Balaam last week. And remember, the way he was able to, um, he was able to get payment, if you will. <laughs> he was about money and his self. And he knew he couldn't speak a curse over the people of Israel because God for, forbade him to do that. But he then later taught the king Balak about if you can get your women to seduce these men into having sex with them in their uh, pagan religious rituals, that will undermine and that will bring judgment upon them. And that's exactly what he did. And actually, if you go back and read, and I do encourage you to go back and read, God, because of God's anger and wrath, because of that happening, these, his people having sex with these idolaters and participating in their rituals, he sent a plague. And it said 24,000 
Israelites died from this plague before it was stopped. And I want you to read that because I want you to read how it was stopped. It was stopped by um, Phineas, I believe it was, and his zeal when he saw a young Israelite man go into the tent of one of the women and, and started to have uh, sexual intercourse with him. Out of zeal for the Lord and what was going on, he went and drove a spear through the, the two of them. And that stopped the wrath of God. And God said, because of Phineas's zeal for me and for righteousness, for what was right, I withdrew. He withdrew the, the plague. So read it. It's sad, but it's what we're talking about here when Jesus says, you have believers among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. So this was the teaching that Balaam taught Balak, the king of the Midianites. I think it was the Midianites. How to overcome the people of Israel through this um, deception. So there were some in, in their church that were holding to some type of teaching that involved some type of probably pagan ritual and sexual immorality. So remember, these churches are in the Gentile nations. These churches are not in Israel. These churches are when the church started moving out. And these are, there's a lot of pagan religions around. And this was likely... Um, a part of that. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. But they also had some who held the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we talked a little bit about that last week. I think that's something to do with believing that because of Christ and because of um, being a, a Christian, we actually have no, no law, no boundaries on us. We can do whatever we want and we have the freedom and liberty to, to do that, and it doesn't matter what we do in this body. It's, we don't know for sure what the teaching was, but there's hints of it being something to do with this type of um, license for sin, if you're a Christian, and, and especially around the area, possibly, of, of sexual morality. So, how do they overcome? Jesus said, repent. He also said, or he would come and war against those who held these evil teachings. Man, that's a frightening thing to think about Jesus coming to war against some in your church. What is the promised reward? The promised reward was they would receive some of the hidden manna and also that they would receive a white stone with a new name written on the stone. Now, we don't know exactly what the hidden manna is, and there's lots of uh, theories about what that is and what that means. Um, I would suggest that this is possibly a, a form of uh, supernatural sustenance and strength during times of persecution and trials. I just, that's just... You know, we don't know exactly what it is, but manna, as we know, was a form of sustaining his people during their wanderings in the, in the desert. And this miraculous food coming from heaven that gave them the nourishment that they needed, the strength that they needed to carry on, I think 
possibly what we're talking about here uh, is a hidden manna of God, a supernatural source of strength in the face of the things they were going to face. But that's just me speculating. I don't know. We don't know for sure what the hidden manna means. Same with the white stone um, with, a, with a new name written on the stone. Uh, Matthew Henry suggests in his commentary that the white stone could signify acquittal as in a court case. He states that some traditions would give a white stone to those who were acquitted in the court case, but a black stone to those who were condemned. So it could be something like that. Um, we know that we are uh, those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we know that that white stone, if it represents being acquitted, that would be accurate uh, to those who remain faithful to the end and are in Christ. We will receive this white stone of, of acquitted. The price has been paid. All right, let's move on to the next church. Okay, I'm going to have to step it up a little bit. To the church in Thyatira. Here we go. And to the angel of the, Lord, of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will, Jesus is saying this, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her. I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces." Even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him, I will give him the, the overcomer, the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's take a look. Who is the author? Jesus, who was written to believers in Thyatira. What were they doing right? Jesus knew their works. Remember, this was an expectation of Jesus, that we would have works of righteousness. He knew their works. He knew their love and faith and service and, and their patient endurance. And he called them good. They were good. He knew also that their latter works exceeded the first. Remember, when we're looking at the church in Ephesus, we were talking about how they had fallen from their first love. They had forgotten of the things that they used to do in the beginning, they, have, they have, had drifted from that. 
What he says here about the church at Thyatira is these believers, they actually, their latter works exceeded the first. What a commendation that is. Well, what were they doing wrong? Well, they were tolerating that woman Jezebel who called herself a prophetess and was teaching and seducing believers to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. All right, I want to pause here and just dig in a little bit here. I want to say, first of all, uh, this, I do believe this to be a woman. Some uh, might say that this is a group of believers uh, and that he was titling as um, Jezebel in their beliefs. And, and I think that there was a following of believers for this woman. But I think that this was likely a woman in the church that he re- described as Jezebel. David Guzik, in his uh, commentary, he, he writes that possibly because of the strong trade guilds in Thyatira, the sexual immorality and the eating of things sacrificed to idols was probably connected with the mandatory social occasions of the guilds. So perhaps a Christian was invited to the monthly meeting of the Goldsmiths Guild, for example, and the meeting was held at the temple Apollo. Jezebel, this woman, would allow and possibly even encourage the man to go, and perhaps even using a prophetic word. Uh, and, and when the man went, he might fall into immorality and idolatry. Now, this is just a possibility. Uh, this is not fact. Um, we don't know for sure, but this is very possible in that time. Some of this stuff, these guilds and these trades, did have a lot of pagan background and requirements and how they operated. And and if you wanted to be one of them or be in business with one of them, this is what they expected of you to participate in this. And this woman would say, listen, we are free. We have liberty. Go and join them. There's, it's, it's no sin to do so. Go and join them. Be a part and, and encourage them to do that and give them license to do that. And, and they would bring themselves under judgment as we see from Jesus's words. Now, I want to say something else uh, about this because I think this is, this is, this, this spirit of Jezebel is something that we um, sometimes may not even realize and that is, it's actually very much in operation today. Uh, and this is a spirit, a demonic spirit that influences through people. Now, many think of a Jezebel as someone who sexually seduces. That tends to be what people think of when they think of a Jezebel. But actually, that's a part of the the method, perhaps. But at the heart of a Jezebelic spirit is control. That is the heart. That is the core motivation of a Jezebel, a, a spirit of Jezebel. It's for control, control over people. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jezebel, Ahab was her husband. Ahab was a king and Jezebel became his wife. Ahab was a king of Israel. He was not to to marry uh, other uh, women from other nations, pagan nations, but he did. He married this uh, Jezebel who came from another uh, nation, another religion, all of that. And we see the influence she had on him. Uh, I would love to spend... Uh, a Sunday or more 
just digging into this, what is a Jezebelic spirit and what is an Ahab spirit? What is someone who's an Ahab? And that really usually falls to the men who become so passive and allowing this woman, this Jezebelic spirit to control everything that they do. There is an order that God has created. Like it or not, that's his order. And the order is uh, God and Jesus as the head and us men as being, you know, reporting to Jesus and our wives, uh, the wives under us. So that is the natural godly order. So this spirit strives to turn that topsy-turvy, turn that around upside down to get that in a different order. Now, this this actually is the, 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 the control, and it's always for self. It's going to be for self. The purposes of controlling people is for self. It's a self-centered um, way of control. And, and even in Christians, this can be in operation and be influencing Christians. And if, if, if it's not specifically dealt with, and this often comes down family lines. And we see it with uh, Ahab. Ahab was the son of Omri, King Omri. And Ahab was his son. And then and Ahab married Jezebel. And we see how Ahab basically just submitted to, to, Je, uh, to Jezebel. Jezebel was kind of uh, controlling things. And she was a wicked, wicked um, woman in the things that she did to 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 kill prophets of God and, and, and all this. And we also see later on, Athaliah was a uh, granddaughter, but she came from the line of Omri, Ahab, and then later Athaliah, and she also had this uh, Jezebelic spirit of control. And you see her controlling her son who became king. He was young, but she was the one that was kind of controlling what he did, and he did uh, awful things as well. And you, you, you read this and you see it. So what I'm saying is this, this spirit often comes down the family line. And it can, it can surface as Jezebel or Ahab. It can surface as Jezebel who likes to control, or it can surface as Ahab who allows Jezebel to control. And this this is an operation in Christian marriages, families, and churches. I, I've seen it often. And it is one of those things that we actually are often, the church is blind to. And these Jezebelic spirits will operate through Christians to control, control their husbands, control their children, Children who have this Jezebelic spirit controlling their parents and people in the church controlling the church. This is a nasty spirit that often goes undetected because I think because we are um, so somewhat used to this, used to uh, this, this Jezebelic spirit being in control over um, other people. And this is one thing that, this is where it's important that a church has a plurality of leadership and elders who will recognize when a Jezebelic spirit is starting to influence others. 
And this influence comes through, listen, take a note of this. This influence comes through manipulation, intimidation, and domination. This Jezebelic spirit will operate through people to manipulate. I mean, it's amazing to see sometimes how this spirit can operate through people. I mean, the tears can be turned on just like that, right at the right time. The intimidation can come very strongly, very strongly. And this is not just a a person's natural, this is a spiritual thing. And until you've experienced what it's like to come under the, the, the manipulation or intimidation of this spirit operating through the person, you may not be aware. But it is, it is real. And in some cases, domination. And this is how the Jezebelic spirit operates through people, through Christians. Listen, if you have a Jezebelic spirit has come down the family line or you have come into agreement with this type of spirit... If you think when you say a sinner's prayer that everything poof is gone, you've not lived life long enough. You've not been around enough Christians. This is not how it works. Sometimes it does. By the grace of God, he expels things for our sake. But sometimes we have to continue to appropriate the promises and the blood of Christ to drive out the evil things that influence us and hold us bondage. And this is one of those things that often comes down from a young Uh, age and is never detected and a person becomes a Christian and the person, listen, it doesn't mean a a Christian who has the spirit, they're probably not going to be in any way wanting people to get into idolatry, the worship of other idols or sexual immorality. It could be just the opposite. But the heart of this, remember the heart and core of this spirit is control. Control over people for, for self purposes. Now, that was a bonus thrown in. That's not even in the price of admission there. <laughs> All right, uh, let's, let's, keep, let's keep moving here. All right, how do they overcome? Jesus said, repent and stop tolerating that woman, her influence and her teaching. The church, the believers were to recognize what was going on and the, the ungodly influence and control she was having over others and they were to put a stop they were to repent first but repentance means not only confessing and and saying you're sorry to the lord but doing something about it and that's what god uh, jesus was calling them to do repent and stop stop her there were some in thyatira as as jesus said who also did not hold uh this teaching and who refused to participate or listen to it. And to them, Jesus laid on them no other burden but to hold firm to what they already had. All right, let's go to Church of Sardis, in Sardis, the church in Sardis, Revelations chapter three, starting verse one, says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet 
you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, who is the author? Jesus, who was it written to? The believers in Sardis. What were they doing right? Well, Jesus does not mention anything that they were doing right, except they had a few who had not soiled their garments. So often throughout Scripture, if you pay attention, you have, there are references to our garments, to our clothing, and that we are to be clothed with um, holiness and righteousness and the righteous deeds that Jesus says follow us. And he's preparing us. We are to be clothed, properly clothed for that wedding. A uh, fascinating parable is to read the, the parable that Jesus tells of the, uh, of the wedding banquet, of the banquet. Uh, and the guy calls everyone uh, to the banquet. And some don't respond, some do. And one guy who did respond and does show up at the banquet, the man who's holding the banquet goes to him and says, you're not properly clothed. Why are you not properly clothed for this wedding? And we need to read what happens to this person who shows up but not properly clothed. We need to pay attention to that parable that Jesus talks about because he was there. He responded to that calling, to that invitation. So let's pay attention to those things because Jesus says right here, there are some who haven't soiled their garments, who haven't stained them by these things. And he says, they are worthy to walk with me. So what were they doing wrong? They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. Jesus knew this because he knew their works. They were asleep to the fact that they were dying. They were asleep to it. And also Jesus did not find their works complete in the sight of, I think it's interesting that he says, my God. And the reason I say it's interesting is, I'm sure you've heard this before. I know I have. Someone might say, well, that's not the God I know. And usually that's in response to anything that might confront something that's sinful or something that's uh, against God's ways. And if it sounds harsh or judgmental, you might get that response. Well, that's not the God I know. It doesn't matter who you think God is. And the thing is, our, under, our uh, opinion of who God is, our uh, uh, interpretation or imagination of who God is, doesn't mean a hill of beans. What matters is who God says that he is. And who his son, who knows his father, who knows his God, says that he is. So where, what we have to listen to is when Jesus says something like this. 
I find that your works are not complete in the sight of my God. Not your God in whatever you've imagined him to be. My God. That's where, from, from where we get the understanding of who God is from God himself and from his son. His son, Jesus Christ, was God made manifest in the flesh. He portrayed the character of God. But remember, he did that on earth as savior. Now he's back as judge. And we need to listen to the description that he gives us. So how do they overcome? Jesus says, wake up. They were sleeping. He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He says, remember what you received and heard. Keep it. And he says, repent. I think all of those are pretty self-explanatory. So what is the promised reward? Um, Lisi, I may be missing that slide because it it's not showing up. So I'm going to just read it. Uh, what is the promised reward? Yeah, I'm definitely missing that one. So what is the promised reward? They will walk with Jesus in white for they are worthy. They will never have their name blotted out of the book of life. I've spent years, years digging into God's word and studying what he says concerning this topic of, for lack of a better word, eternal security. And one thing I have learned is it ain't so simple as how so many people make it out to be. There are so many warnings throughout scripture that are written to believers who are, have been converted, who have been born again, who have touched the things of heaven, written to the church who face persecution at the face of death, who face all kinds of things, written to the believers. These are warnings and we've, we're reading them. And I've heard teachers take all of these warnings and simply wrap them up in this little thing and say, yep, doesn't apply to us. Throw them right out the window. And I think there is a danger. I think there's a danger in doing that. And that's one thing where I tread very carefully about adding to or taking away from these words of Jesus. So I'm going to let those lie exactly how he has said them. All right. He also says that uh, Jesus will confess their name before his father and before his angels. All right. Church of Philadelphia, I'm already, uh, I should be closing, but I'm going to go on. We're almost done here. Church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient 
endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to, to try those to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from God out of heaven. And my own new name he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It was written by Jesus and it was to the believers in Philadelphia. Also, all of, as all of these letters are written to us as well. What are they doing right? What were they doing right? They had little power, yet they have kept Jesus' word and have not denied his name. Again and again, we see this repeated. Not to deny his name, to stand firm, to hold fast to his name, even in the face of persecution and death. They had patiently endured. What were they doing wrong? Like the church in Smyrna, Jesus had no rebuke for this church. Wow. How did they overcome? He said, hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And what is the promised reward? They will be made a pillar in the temple of God and never shall they go out of it. And it will be written on them the name of God, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and Jesus' own name. Last church. A lot of you have heard of this one. The church in Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would you, would that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. If you look at the original Greek on this, it's more, uh, there's, it's more strong than that. It's actually, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will spew you out of my mouth. That's, that's what the original Greek more so portrays, but we've toned it down a little bit. Actually, ESV did a better job of saying, you know, uh, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, kind of, you know, they could have been a little bit stronger, but that's what Jesus says. I will I will spew you out of my mouth. I will vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. He's counseling his people. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, listen church, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Written by Jesus to the believers in Laodicea, what were they doing right? They had little power, yet they have kept Jesus' word and have not denied his name. What were they doing wrong? They were neither hot nor cold. Jesus said he'd rather you be cold than lukewarm. Get off the fence. Stop stop wavering back and forth. We, We see that so often throughout Scripture. To be wholeheartedly committed to him, not half-hearted. They, brought, uh, they, they thought they were rich, but really they were wretched. How do they overcome? Buy from me gold refined by fire, white garments and salve for your eyes. Listen, Jesus is saying, wake up, do something about what I'm telling you. Do something about it. Recognize your wretchedness, your nakedness, and, and humble yourself and seek, thirst after God, hunger after him, hunger after that righteousness. Wake up and do something about it. You're dying. He says, be zealous and repent. And then listen for his voice and open the door. What is the promised reward? Uh, Real quick, let me just say, I'll just, in passing, unfortunately, Revelations 3.20 is one of the most um, misquoted scriptures because people quote that as an evangelism, a verse of evangelism. Listen, you've seen for yourself, Jesus is not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers and he's talking to the church when he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church in Laodicea because he's not in the church. He is not in the church and they don't even recognize that he's not there. He's outside the church. But he's outside the church knocking. This was his people. These are his believers, his servants, and he's out there knocking. I'm not in there. I'm out here. And the, the wonderful thing about this is Jesus said, it only takes one to open the door. One, to open the door and let him back in. And Jesus said, I will sup with him. I will sit down and eat with him in that church, with him. But it only takes one to open that door. Ladies, you who are praying in the morning and and at night, I, I commend you. Thank you. Because it only takes one to open that door. It only takes one to get Jesus back in this church. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is not in this church, but maybe if the boot fits, we need to put it on. And we need to be listening for his voice and listening for his knock. Listen, this is not a scripture for unbelievers. We need to stop using it like that. The reason we need to stop using it, and listen, I've done this many times as well. So I had to dig in and say, yeah, that's out of context. This is not for unbelievers because it's patronizing. We tell unbelievers, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. He wants to come in. Will you please let him in? It's patronizing to Jesus. No, no. You should get on your knees and cry out to the Lord and repent and maybe he will accept you. Maybe he will let you in. Maybe he will save you. Maybe he will grant you that repentance. We get that wrong and it's to the detriment of our gospel, I'm afraid. That's not Jesus 
Jesus is not standing at the door knocking. He's standing at the door of the church knocking and saying, I'm not in there. Wake up. Jesus is so, and his father is, and that's why he is. He cares and he's concerned about the church, about us, about his servants, about believers. So much so that he wrote these letters. God gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel to send to John on an island and said, write this down. Let me show you the things to come. But I'm concerned about my church. They're not ready. Write this down and give it to them. Tell them, this is what I say. And man, if we look at our church in the the state that we're in compared to the early Christians, it is a sad state of affairs and we must wake up and listen to these words. Things are coming and they're coming fast. And if we're not prepared, we will not be overcomers. God, thank you for your words of truth. Thank you for giving to your son, Jesus Christ, this message, this revelation for your servants. You sent it for us, not for the world, for us. Thank you. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But you're so patient. You're so kind. And you care about us so much that you're willing to say the hard things and to tell us, wake up. Those whom I love, I correct, I discipline, I reprove. Listen to me. God, help us to listen. Help us to hear what you're saying. Help us to let go of any denominational preconceptions of what these words mean and just receive your words for what they mean. God, help us to wake up. Help us to repent. Help us to do what you want us to do. Church, I want to ask you to stand. Worship should be a response to God's incredible love and glory and faithfulness. If you're up to me, I think I would always have the teaching first, then the worship, because God has spoken to us through these letters, these seven letters. Jesus himself has made these things known, and now is our turn to respond to what he has said. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. 
my heart. 